Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors, such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business, and stay connected with their clients, while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA benchmarking study is just one of many ways they provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com. Welcome to the RIA Edge podcast. This is Mark Bruno, Managing Director of the Wealth Management Group at Informa, and we are very excited to have a special guest here today, Don Bechter, Managing Partner from RMB, based out of Denver. Don, thank you so much for joining us here today. We're really looking forward to learning a little bit more about RMB's growth and success. Great, Mark. Well, thank you very much for having me on the, the program. It's uh, good to catch up with you again after a couple of years since you uh Red Echelon. Yeah, and I appreciate you taking some time out. We've had some really great conversations yet lately with some of the largest professional buyers out there. But I, you know, I've known RMB, you know, going back quite some time. You participated in a lot of research projects that uh, that I've led. Um, also, obviously, had the opportunity to connect when I was at Echelon Partners. And you're doing a lot of things that I think our audience would like to be doing uh, and can really learn from. You, you've done a lot to really drive growth in a number of strategic ways. So I'm really excited to get into the nuts and bolts of some of that. Before we do, Don, though, would you mind, just for our listeners who might not be familiar with RMB, um, would you mind just giving a little bit of a background on the firm and your role? Sure. So RMB, we are a uh... You know, an independent RAA uh, founded in 2005, founded by a, co- a couple of uh, gentlemen that came out of a, uh, a you know a large bank broker dealer to to form an independent firm. Um, we are uh, focused, I guess. You know, when we think about where do we sit, we're we're uh, we've got this combination of um, this very relationship focused financial and life planning. Um, advisory service, and we combine that with a high-quality in-house investment expertise, and and we think that is a bit differentiating. As as you know, a lot of firms have outsourced um, the investment part of their business, mm-hmm. and so we find that our clients find that see a lot of value in in us putting both of those together, and then delivering that with a with some expert teams that are uh, up to speed on all those areas. So we, we ask a lot of our advisor teams in terms of their, you know, knowledge and, and uh, what they're able to deliver to clients. So that, that's just kind of the business, you know, at a very high level, my history, I um, had a 20 year history or career in investment banking before joining RMB in 2011. Um, I mentioned to you that the firm was founded in, in 2005 and the, the founders of the firm was a gentleman named Dick Burridge. He is the RMB, and then Fred Palman. I happen to be Dick Burridge is one of my um, longtime dearest friends from college. We we met as freshmen in college and had been friends ever since. When I mentioned I had been twenty years in investment banking, we sold our firm to a large Canadian bank in two thousand and seven. I stayed on for another four years, but had determined that I wanted to do something different um, with the rest of my career, even though investment banking had been a great experience. It was just time to do something different. And so um, Dick and I were having lunch. Um, 
I was telling him about what I was thinking about. He was talking to me about his aspirations for growing RMB outside of the Chicago area where we're based. And so long story short, we came to this idea where I would join the firm to start a Western presence of R&B based here in Denver, and then also bring with my background and in inorganic growth capability. You know, people say, shouldn't, you know, go to work with your friends. And, but uh, Dick and I had had such a long um, period of, you know, trust and, and professional and personal respect for each other that that became easy. I had known Fred Plum and his partner and thought very highly of him. And then on top of that, I had been a client of the firm. When we left college together, Dick joined Lehman Brothers to start his investment career. I went off to go to business school and start this investment banking career. Um, but I became a client, um, one of his first clients, I believe, with my $1,000 or whatever it was of net worth and kind of kept along with the firm since then. So I knew a lot about what was going on and it became an easy approach because I, I knew the type of people and integrity they, they'd have and, and what that would look like. And, and so so it's been great. And so I started off uh, building this business in the West for RMB and and beginning this inorganic growth strategy. Now I'm managing partner, so I'm more across the firm responsible for the day-to-day -day business and operations and then developing along with the founders and we, we have a, an incredible executive uh, senior leadership team, the long-term strategic direction of the firm. Excellent. And it's uh, it's funny when people say that the RAA industry is a, a cottage industry, right? We tend to lose sight of that sometimes, but then you hear got started in a dorm room potentially, right? And that's how RMB you know, had put its roots in the ground. Um, that's funny and really good to know. And it's really impressive to see where you both are today. Before we get into a little bit more about the growth story, uh, Don, roughly how many employees does RMB have and roughly how many clients or households do you all work with? We have about 150 employees and uh, right around, I want to say 2,600 clients. Okay. I mean, it's, it's a, a really you know, massive firm that I think... You know, might fly under the radar a little bit um, when it comes to you know our industry. And I think you've done, I know you've done some very interesting things that are behind the scenes for a lot of our you know, audience and a lot of our listeners. If you could, as you look back at some of the things that you've done in maybe the last three to five years at RMB to drive growth, um, whether it's you know, M&A, whether it's some more organic and strategic you know, business development and marketing that you've done, what would you say are the primary contributors to RMB's growth? Yeah. And I, th I think we're not dissimilar in that our growth, like our industry, has come from three main areas. One is organic growth, which um, is, you know, in, in our mind, the most important to have that foundation of organic growth. And we've had a history of, you know, that growth um, culture and mindset. And I can talk a little bit more about that, but also um, inorganic growth, which I know not every firm is doing, um, and some two firms are doing it a lot more than others. I think we're, we are somewhere in the middle, and I'll, I can dig into that a little bit more too. And then lastly, obviously, you know, the market is one thing that's out of our control, and you know, you hope that over time it's it's going to help us if we're if our revenues are tied to asset values that that's going to help us over time. But it doesn't always do that, like we uh, right. experienced in this last year. 
So maybe we can start with the M&A piece. Um, we do talk about that a lot on RA Edge, but I'm not as familiar, and I don't know that our listeners are as familiar with your specific philosophy around M&A and how you've approached it. Um, so you, know, you mentioned that you're in the middle, so to speak, right? Um, there are probably 10 to 15 firms that are responsible for 90% of the deals that you know take yes. place in this industry. Um, the others, though, are at times you know, far more interesting because they might be more accessible right, for our audience and our listening. They might understand them a little bit more. Um, so can you talk a little bit about some of the M&A that you've done recently and what, your, what role M&A you think will play in RMB's growth moving forward? Yes. So I think you're right. We are in the middle. We're not... I would not call us, you know, a roll-up firm. Um, we don't sort of go into a year saying we're going to make five acquisitions this year. Uh, we are very opportunistic about it. And by that, I mean, you know, we're, we're typically not involved in bidding and auctions for firms. Um, pretty much, I think all of the deals that we've done, and there's been maybe eight to 10 of them, have been um, sourced through our network. Either it's been introduced to us by a custodian relationship or uh, someone else in the industry, or we've known them through different industry events and you know, kind of build a relationship. It's almost like we, you know, how we bring new clients into our firm. It starts with a relationship and it grows from there. And then we decide that we're both better off being together. And then we craft a deal that's fair and, and that's how we we get that done. So that's kind of been our, our history. We started um, very small in terms of our acquisitions, partly because it was it was new to the firm. We were just getting used to it, getting our, our feet wet. And some of the early acquisitions um, were very small in terms of asset size and revenue, but they brought in key talent. And, mm -hmm. you know, for example, in building our, our team here in Denver, um, we started with a very small acquisition that brought in you know, two incredible advisors that are still with us today in, in senior leadership roles. And so that was, um, you know, just a, a great example of, you know, how we started. And then as we got more confidence with it, um, learned lessons along the way, as you do, and some of them, you know, leave little scars, um, but you learn. And, and we started to do larger acquisitions. We um, had a, a very close relationship with a community bank in the Chicago area that helped us um, fund those acquisitions. And so we kind of built along the way and they were different forms, whether it was, you know, an actual RIA, some things on the investment side to fill strategic holes, bringing teams on those sorts of things are are what those look like. And then we got to the point in, I think it was in 2017, 2018 timeframe, we did our largest three acquisitions. And uh, it, if, if anything, it, it put a, a little bit of a strain on our system, just doing three large acquisitions in one year. We are, you know, a firm that we don't have a segregated um, due diligence, um, M&A integration team. So the people yeah. that are doing those roles are, you know, they have day jobs and, so anyway, we we um, there was some element of people waving the, the white flag after those three large acquisitions. So we kind of learned from that. We um, and also you know had uh, just the financial impact of purchasing those firms. So we decided to take a break and and integrate uh, the the things that we had done. So we did those over the next few years, um, and then a couple of things happened. You know, obviously COVID hit, but I think even more importantly. 
what you saw happen over the last three to five years is the massive sort of inflow of uh, you know private equity and other investors into our industry driving um, more acquisition activity, driving you know values up. And as I mentioned earlier, that's competing in those types of um, things are probably not a, the best fit for us. So we've been a little bit uh, quiet. We've looked at stuff but haven't really done anything. I think we're ready to get to get back into that if we can find you know the right opportunities. And I think the way that the market has been going, we might find that that um, comes back to a level where you know we we can find some some really good um, opportunities. Yeah, I appreciate the history, but also the candor, right? M and A is really hard, and it can it's even harder to get right. Um, so when you talked about doing three deals in a year and needing to take some time off. I get it. <laughs> yeah. It's uh it's not just getting the actual deal done, right? The the real work happens on that Monday morning after the deal closes when you try to bring everybody together. So I think, you know, for some of our listeners who might be thinking about all right, some of their options if they wanted to do say their first deal. There are some really good pieces of advice in there. Um, especially, you know, one thing that you know really resonated with me is you're not structured like a large publicly traded company that would have a corporate development team, right? That would do all the due diligence and you know, knows all the questions to ask through that process and thinks about, you don't have an integration team, right? You are the integration team. So there's so much that goes into the deal you know, above and beyond just finding the right price and the right fit. Um, you know, Making it work is a full-time job. <laughs> so thank you for you know, being really honest about your experience there. Just one final question on the M&A side. Um, you, you touched on, on the state of the market right now, um, and activity slowed down a bit. It seems like valuations are still high, but not as high as they were at the peak. Just in general, I'm curious, we talk about valuations quite a bit, but we don't necessarily talk about the quality of the firms that might be looking to sell right now. How would you categorize you know, some of the opportunities that you know, you've come across over the last, let's call it six months or so? Perfect. And I wanted, Mark, just to address one thing, just to follow up on something that you said before I get into that. Um, and that is that I mentioned, you know, being a little bit opportunistic, having, you know, this relationship approach that really helped us a lot too. I think for mm -hmm. listeners that as opposed, you know, we're a firm that we're not going to acquire another firm and then just say, okay, keep doing what you're doing and, you know, let us know how it goes. We really want to integrate them into the R&B culture have it consistent from a branding standpoint across the firm. And so that means that that integration has to go um, really well. And, and that relationship to start with is, is huge in making that happen and having the trust and, and all that. I just wanted to touch on that. That's yeah. a little bit different than, you know, again, if you're out trying to acquire five to 10 things a year, it's very hard to do that. I think. Sure. It's um, uh, it, it, that satellite approach can work in some cases, right? But you're building one company and that requires things to work a little bit more <laughs> in some cases. Yes. Yes. Um, and then to your comment, yeah, the, I think the, the state of the market, it's this obviously is a very has been and is a very fragmented industry, but it's it's consolidating. We talked about there's new capital that's come in that has been driving a lot of that. Um, and then. You know, we also have just forces going on where our clients are demanding more from us. They want technology. Um, we've got regulators who are, you know, creating, com you know, compliance um, obligations that all that stuff is is um, 
hard and expensive, and you have to have some sort of scale to be able to do that. Uh, and then also with you know what's been going on with new investors coming in, there there's been this talent war where mm-hmm. firms are out looking to to bring in talent, high quality advisors, um, you know, management, uh, you know, whatever it is, and so. Um, to compete with that, it, it's just it's becoming harder and harder um, for smaller firms. And you know, even our firm, I still consider so you know somewhat small. But it used to be that a billion dollars was big. Now you know, at, at ten billion, you know, we we still sometimes feel small. So you you have to uh, keep up with that stuff. And I think that is continuing to drive um, a lot of this consolidation where firms. That might not have a you know a great succession plan in place, or might not have the options to do that. Need you know as as the founders get a little bit older, they need liquidity. So it's it's driving that to some extent. And and I think the the one thing that had changed, and you know this very well from your time at Echelon, is that it was that very few of the deals were you know banked deals involving an investment bank. And investment banks, you know, do a great job. They create a process. They bring in buyers that you know you wouldn't otherwise find. Um, but it does create this sort of you know auction type process, uh, which um, can make it tougher unless you're you know a firm that's specifically built to to deal with those situations. So anyway, that's just kind of a long winded response that um, we are seeing. You know, I think the market in terms of valuations and activity slow down a bit. And I think that's going to maybe bring it back to where sellers are a bit more, you know, rather than, Hey, let's just go, you know, do an auction and let's get 20 bids and figure out the best deal, be a little bit more um, thoughtful about what is the right home for, for me, my employees, um, our clients, uh, and, and kind of think long-term about that, relational fed and um, more than maybe they have the last few years. Yeah. And that's a great you know, summary or state of the state of kind of where we are today. You know, I hear that you know, quite a bit and I think you know, being patient right, um, is not a bad thing. And I think one of the things that's interesting is when I'm talking with sellers, there are still obviously people that are looking at it as a you know, beginning of a succession plan or a succession plan out. Right. But there are more and more people who are looking for partners that are helping look, are going to help them grow. Um, there may be more of a sell and stay type of situation, which you know is driving you know more and more conversation right now, at least that I'm aware of. You know, on this subject of growth, maybe that's a good way to transition to some of the success, some of the strategies you have in place that have helped RMB grow organically. What are some of the things you walk through? Obviously, there's the organic growth, inorganic growth, and the market or investment related growth. But when you're looking right at the marketing, business development, referral, just sort of the bread and butter, right? Um, That keeps clients coming in, helps you deepen relationships with existing clients. What are some of the organic growth approaches that you've taken that have been the most successful? Organic growth is the most important and it's, we're, we are very focused on it. Um, It's important, as you know, I'm speaking to the choir here, but very important for employees, you know, employees, advisors, they want to be with a growing firm um, or else if you're not growing, they're going to leave. Clients, uh, it's good for clients because you need to be able to grow and to be able to continue to invest, like I said, in things that they're going to demand of us. And then also it's just, it's a lot more fun to be part of a growing firm. I think, you know, 
no one wants to be at a firm that's sort of going backwards and declining. So that's kind of the importance of it. Um, it's been a challenge for the industry. You may know better. I think people tell us that when you peel away a lot of the you know, market stuff and inorganic stuff that real organic growth in the industry has been sort of, you know, from flat to maybe low single digits. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So that, you know, and that's, we don't want to be there. We want to be better than that. We've got a history of, um, of uh, growth, you know, culture and have had success there, you know, but honestly, over the last few years, we've had some challenges where, you know, we might be back down in the mid, mid single digits. And so the, the point that I'm making here is that it's something that you can't just uh, take for granted. It's something that you've got to continue to refine. You've got to keep it front of mind and, you know, create discipline and intention around it. Because, you know, we, we talk a lot about our, if we think about three things that we want to focus on every day, it's our doing a really great job for our clients and providing them exceptional service and advice. That's number one. Number two is growing the business, doing that for more clients. And then the third thing is everything else that you need to do operationally to support those two. But, you know, when you think about it, you can spend easily 120% of your time focused on clients because there's always more that you can do from them. And they've been requiring more from our industry over the last few years. So you can create um, ways to not focus on organic growth. And, and so that's where the discipline and intention comes in and, and, you know, creating time for it. And so some of the things that we're doing right now, we're, we're putting all of our um, probably 50 plus people in our firm that have, are either client facing or have some sort of service connection with clients through a business development training program that um, is, you know, just again, always helpful to kind of remind ourselves of those, develop the, the right habits, make it part of your day and week. We, we are, you know, part of the reason that people put that off that I mentioned is that you don't have enough time or capacity. So we're, we're going through a, a pretty massive technology conversion um, with a goal of simplifying and, and automating and providing a lot more time in the day for our wealth management and advisor team so that they can spend more time with clients and, and prospects. Um, we reworked our compensation system a little bit to specifically focus on that area. And then we, we've also tried to support all of this with um, a marketing effort. A year ago, we brought in a new chief marketing officer who's been fantastic. Um, she's built a, a great team. We've done work on our you know value proposition. We've refreshed our branding and you know created these tools that that are built to support that. So, um, those are the things that we're doing right now, um, but it it, it never kind of ends. You have to kind of keep doing that. And ultimately, for us, I, I truly believe that it's really not a, a sale, that if we're doing our job for clients, it's it just means getting in front of more potential clients that would be a good fit. And if we can do that, it's, it becomes kind of a no-brainer when, when they get to know us learn what we're about, what we do for other clients that are like them. You know, it's it's very authentic. It's not a salesy approach. And so that's kind of the mindset that we try to have. Yeah. And I appreciate, Don, that you didn't just highlight one thing, right? And position it as if there is a silver bullet. Um, we know that there's not. Um, and I especially appreciate 
the way you started talking about your organic growth strategy wasn't with a specific lever that you can pull to drive growth, you know, marketing or business development, but how important it is to not get distracted <laughs> by all the things that take you away from thinking about and acting on some of the growth opportunities that are out there, right? You know, it, it, it's easy, right? To avoid sometimes because it's yeah. hard. Yeah. Um, and I, the one thing I, I would like to just sort of touch on for another minute and maybe get a little bit more context. You mentioned this business development you know, training for some of your sales professionals. I find that really interesting. There are not a lot of firms that do that, um, but I find it particularly interesting at firms that may have had you know, two or three founders that were very good at business development. And every year they bring in 10, 20, you know, 50 million in net new assets. Once you get to a certain point, a th certain threshold though, that 10, 20 or 50 million doesn't move the needle as much. Um, so there does need to be some sort of scaled process in place that makes sure you're always growing consistently. That business development training program, is that something that you do, you've developed, you do in-house or do you partner with anybody? How have you approached that? Um, good question. And and I did want to mention that, uh, yes, our, our founders, you know, I would say there's nobody better in the industry than our founders in terms of, you know, this culture and idea of growth. And so that's um, really propelled the firm in the early years. And as we get bigger, you know, you just have to, you can't take for granted that everyone's going to be, you know, the same way in terms of how they think about it. And, yep. you know, we've got some absolutely great advisors, uh, awesome with clients. And, but, you know, we kind of sometimes forget that, well, you know, people do though need to be trained in this. They're not, not everyone is just kind of a born business development person. So that's part of it. We, um, we uh, brought in a new chief client officer last year who is running kind of all of our client service business. And uh, he brought with him this relationship with his sales training outfit and had used it before with success. And so that's kind of the, the history of that. And it's, it's kind of an ongoing process through this year where we'll kind of, you know, provide people with the tools and the mindset. And, and then, you know, we've also through some of the technology changes that I mentioned um, mm -hmm. are in a much better position to just sort of track metrics and activity. So that's the other part of it is you've got to be able to, you know, measure and, mm -hmm. and track things as you go. I, yeah, I find that really interesting, not just the process, right. That you're putting in place, but um, it's, it's new and you're experimenting, right. And you're figuring out, you know, will this work? You know, and if it does, how do we improve on it? And if it doesn't, what's, what do we try next? Right. I think there's a ton of you know, innovation and experimentation that's happening in this industry behind the scenes. So Don, just thank you for highlighting that one specific you know, business development program that you have in place. Um, you know, before we end, I, I do want to make sure that we you know, touch on where you're seeing some specific growth opportunities you know, for RMB, but potentially just for you know, the RIA industry in general. Um, I think our listeners may be sick of hearing me say this, but even though markets aren't you know cooperating or as great as everybody would like right now, and we're in you know, bear market territory, I firmly believe this is a bull market for financial advice. I, I firmly believe that the need for professional financial advice has never been greater. Um, and there are some amazing firms like RMB, right? Um, that are in a position to help people who might be three, five years away from retirement or just starting retirement um, and really need you know, help figuring out how to properly withdraw, decumulate assets um, and make sure that they are living off of a financial plan, right? Um, a well thought out one. 
Um, Don, you know, with that, where are you seeing some opportunities now? More more specific to net new right clients and uh, net new client assets for RMB and other RIAs to grow their businesses. Mark, you you referenced kind of what's going on in the market, and and I think um, all, all that stuff for us we look at as a positive because um, you know while it can be painful, you know when asset values come down and all that, I think we're having a you know correction of some of the stuff that had been going on with artificially low interest rates and mm-hmm. you know, creating this dynamic um, that was not really sustainable. So we're kind of painfully going through that now. But but at any time you go through something like that, like the financial crisis, um, for for us it creates more opportunities because people are thinking about you know whether they're with an advisor already and they're thinking about is this you know am I being positioned right? Am I being serviced correctly to deal with this? They may think about, you know, I should maybe look at other opportunities or, as you mentioned, the people that are have not had an advisor, but they're they're coming up on retirement, they're inheriting money, they're whatever it is that they sort of determine, boy, I I really do need some advice. That's really good for our industry, number one, but a firm like ours. And um, so, you know, the demographics that you know better than I in terms of, you know, the the massive amount of wealth transfer that is happening and is going to happen. Um, and I go, I go back to what I said before about if we're doing our job right for our clients, um, it just becomes in a way a numbers game of how do we get ourselves in front of more client prospects that would be a good fit. And if we do that, we're very, very good at you know bringing that business in. So it's just, it's really a matter of how do you create an environment where you can do that more often. So I think that's that's a huge opportunity for us. I think on I mentioned earlier the key part of our business that is our this um, high quality institutional class investment platform, which is unique for a firm our size um, that our clients do find a lot of value in. I think the markets now with the changes and interest rates going up and you know um, dealing with you know equity markets and, and valuations the. Uh, active management is already and will, I think, become more of a important part of it rather than just, you know, sort of easy market indexing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that is, I think, an advantage that we that we have and where we see a big growth opportunity, not only on the private client side, but um, within our institutional client base. Um, and then, you know, lastly, as, as I mentioned earlier, I think the opportunity is coming around again where we can be go back to some inorganic growth. Um, again, I think it's going to be measured and opportunistic, um, but I, I do feel like we're going to have that opportunity again here soon. Yeah, I appreciate, Don, you not only sharing your thoughts, but getting very specific and giving some examples and some insights into your the, the fabric of RMB. It's one of the things that has made you successful. It's one of the reasons you landed on the RIA Edge 100, which I should have said congratulations a lot earlier in the interview, but we're not surprised to see you on that list. So congrats again. And Don, thank you very much for stopping by the podcast. We really do appreciate it. Well, Mark, thanks so much for having us, uh, not only on the list, but on the program as well. And uh I very much appreciate it. Yeah, we wanted to make sure that we help you know, our audience get a better understanding of you know, what's working right for you, because I know and I knew going into this interview that you were doing a lot of things that I think are accessible right for our audience. Um, and we'll have to have you on for a part two, because we barely 
scratch the surface on the talent and human capital side. Um, and you did mention positions like, uh, I think you said a chief marketing officer and a chief client or experience, you know, uh, type of role. Um, that could be a podcast episode in and of itself. So um, keep your calendar open, right? We may come back to you for a part two, Doc. You know, Mark, I'd love to do that because I I, I didn't spend much time on, you know, just the, the great people we have. And that's what, I mean, it's, you know, you've heard the thing about, uh, being a good coach correlates very well with the quality of the talent on your team. And it's the same thing with, you know, managing a firm. And uh, so I, I feel just incredibly grateful and lucky to be, you know, part of the team we have here at R&B. And uh, we're grateful for you taking the time out here today to join the podcast. And as a formal reminder to all of our listeners, mark your calendar. May 21st through May 24th is when the RIA Edge main event will be taking place at the Diplomat Hotel in Hollywood, Florida. So, Don, thank you very much for stopping by the podcast. Thank you to everybody for tuning in today. And we look forward to having you all back on the next episode of the RIA Edge podcast. Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors, such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business and stay connected with their clients, while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA benchmarking study is just one of many ways they provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com.